Hi, everyone. You're listening to IDC International Radio. My name is Roni Firon, and this is The Bigger Picture, where we sit down with experts to hear about their journeys, their insights, and the big ideas that drive them. Stay tuned for today's episode. In today's episode, we discuss political psychology with Professor Gilad Hirschberger, an experimental social and political psychologist who studies collective threats and their relevance to group survival concerns and to intergroup relations. Based on a multidimensional existential threat model that he developed, he studies how the shadow of past threats, such as the Holocaust, and the specter of threats looming in the future can influence attitudes, behaviors, and cognitions. Gilad received his BA in psychology from Berkeley and a PhD in experimental psychology from Barilan University. He then went back to Berkeley to complete his postdoctorate. Currently, Gilad is an associate professor of psychology at IDC. Okay, first of all, thank you for joining us today, Gilad. To start, can you give the audience a bit of a background on how you started your journey in political psychology and where the fascination with this field began? Okay. So uh, first, hi, Roni, and thanks for inviting me to this uh, show. Um, so everything really begins when I was about 14. I was always very interested in politics, and I became uh, very active in the uh, youth movement of a uh, political party. I'm not even going to mention which one because I'm kind of ashamed of that today. I, I moved to the other side of the uh, political spectrum uh, ever since. Okay. But, but I think what remained uh, the same for me is my passion for politics and my interest in uh, politics. So I was very active uh, in this uh, youth movement. And uh, then I did my military service. Uh, I served in the uh, territories uh, for a few months, and that was a uh, life-changing uh, experience for me, and it really altered my perceptions of the uh, conflict between Israel and the Palestinians. And uh, after that, I found myself in uh, 1992 at UC Berkeley, as you said, uh, doing my uh, BA. Um, I wasn't quite sure where I was going uh, with that. Uh, I, I was pre-med at first. So I, I was thinking of uh, being a medical doctor. But then I stumbled onto a social, a, a, a intro to psych. It was first intro to psych class uh, led by Christina uh, Maslach, uh, who is a famous uh, social psychologist. And uh, that made me think that maybe psychology is where I want to go. At the same time, I was also taking many classes in Berkeley's uh, Peace and Conflict program. And so the combination of psychology and peace and conflict was very appealing. But at that point, I wasn't sure that I was going in the direction of political psychology. So I, I finished my uh, BA, and uh, at the time, I met an Israeli professor who was visiting uh, Berkeley, uh, Victor Florian, and uh, he started doing research in a theory called terror management theory, which is a theory okay. on how people regulate uh, their fear of death or existential concerns. I became fascinated with him and with the theory, and decided to come back to Israel and do my PhD uh, here at Bar-Ilan University. So I finished my uh, PhD um, on terror management, nothing political at, at that point, and then went back to uh, Berkeley for my postdoc, where I specialized in uh, psychophysiological uh, research. 
But then something happened. 9-11 took place a few weeks after we, uh, we arrived at Berkeley. And once again, that uh, sparked my interest in politics. And on the side, I started to do some research in political psychology. It was still more of a hobby than the main uh, thing. And as time went by, I became more and more interested uh, in that. Uh, another uh, uh, point of uh, transformation for me was the, um, uh, the withdrawal from the Gaza Strip, the mm-hmm. disengagement uh, plan. And, and my first uh, real uh, political psychology paper came out of that. And so th- since uh, 2005, I've really been uh, uh, investing most of my time uh, in doing research in political psychology, and, uh, and that's where I am today. And what do you think drew you to political psychology? What about it is fascinating to you? Well, again, first of all, my interest in politics is, uh, you know, I've, I've been interested since I was uh, a teenager. Uh, so that's one thing. And uh, the other thing is that when... I read the literature in political psychology. I felt that something was really off about it. Okay. And I thought, you know, I, I need to say something different about this because I, I have a feeling that um, people are, are doing things and writing things that are very appealing, uh, but are not necessarily correct. But there's something and missing. There's something missing. And, and uh, you know, I don't want to be too extreme, but there's something very, very off about the field of political psychology. And I'll just mention one thing. It's very difficult to do political psychology and, uh, and maintain the right boundaries between seeking the truth and advancing a political cause. Absolutely. So most, most political psychologists are also political activists. They want to advance something. Now, when you want to advance something and that something may clash with the truth, what are you going to do? You start bending the truth. So you start, sometimes what happens is you start bending the truth. And I think that's exactly what is happening in political psychology. And uh, I'm much more interested in uh, understanding, first of all, what is going on and how people think. And it's not that I don't have any political goals or, uh, uh, you know, any wishes for how things will turn out. But in my career, what I try to do is to understand, first of all, not advance anything. So basically, your multidimensional model introduces an evolutionary perspective into this field. Uh, Among other things, not just an evolutionary perspective, but it's also a model that uh, came out of my frustration with uh, the current uh, zeitgeist in the the field. So uh, to to this day, the uh, most uh, dominant model of threats looks at all threats, whether individual, collective, or any kind of threat, as a unitary uh, construct. So all threats are one and the same, okay. and they all do the same thing, and they're all perceived by the same kind of people. And that just didn't seem right to me. It didn't make sense to me. And uh, so I started- There's a lot more nuance. I think it's much, much more nuanced than uh, uh, what people currently think. And, and I think it's even more nuanced than what I'm showing in my research. Uh, you know, we, it's, it's a very, very complex construct. Uh, but looking at it in a multidimensional uh, fashion, which is what I'm doing, is uh, closer to, is is a much closer approximation of the truth than uh, the current uh, model, which is uh, very appealing to uh, people, especially uh, you know American or European uh, liberal uh, political psychologists, who simply want to think or believe that uh, the left doesn't feel threatened and only the right feels uh, threatened. 
Right. Um, and uh, as much as I sympathize with their cause, I don't think they're right. And, you know, from what you've shown, the left is threatened, but by very different things than the right is threatened, right? The, the right is threatened more by physical uh, threats, whereas the left... What would you say that they're threatened by? Okay, so so here let's get into the model a little bit and understand uh, what the model is saying. Uh, what I'm proposing is that uh, people's existential threats range on three main axes. Uh, the first axis is the difference between a personal threat and a collective threat. And, and there is a difference. There's a difference between feeling individually threatened and feeling that our group is threatened. Just to note, uh, just, to, just to bring up one example of the difference, um, when it comes to our own uh, personal existential threat, we are uh, pretty much uh, doomed when it comes to that, right? There's nothing that we can do about our eventual death. All of us will die at some point, and no matter what we do, uh, we have to come to terms with that uh, reality. But when it comes to the collective, to the group, the group can persevere indefinitely. There's no reason why it should cease to exist. Sometimes it does cease to exist for all kinds of reasons, but groups have the potential at least to survive uh, indefinitely. And that means that our motivations to protect ourself and our group are very different motivations. When it comes to ourself, what we want to do is deny the threat. And that's exactly terror management theory that we described before. Okay, so we actively try to push away thoughts of death from our mind. When it comes to the group, it's much more about prevention of threat and much more about retaliation and creating deterrence and not about denial because uh, the group can continue to survive. So there are different mechanisms in play. So that's one axis. Another axis is the difference between a physical threat and a symbolic threat. Not all threats are physical in nature. So, for instance, a physical threat is, is very easy to understand. Um, at, at the collective level, if we're talking uh, about collective threats, uh, Iran's uh, nuclear program is a collective physical threat. The threat of a war that may wipe out a country is a collective physical threat. Most of the threats that we're dealing with today that are existential in nature are not necessarily physical. Uh, there are many threats that will completely alter the world that we live in that do not have a physical nature. So, so for instance, uh, here in Israel, the question of whether Israel can continue to be a democracy and a Jewish state, that is an existential threat. If it changes its character into something else without anybody necessarily dying, it will no longer be what it is. Um, and that's say, a symbolic threat. And that's a symbolic existential threat. Um, when we look at the United States and Europe and we see demographic shifts in these uh, countries, this is something that uh, people don't like to uh, talk about, but there is a uh, shift that's happening and, and there's a uh, growing awareness of this threat uh, that's leading to all kinds of uh, political um, uh, actions, uh, uh, vote, different voting patterns, etc. Uh, that is a symbolic existential threat. So if we look at the issue of immigration, it's not just about terrorism and violence. It's also about the changing nature of the country. And then we have another, the third axis is a temporal axis, and that's uh, the difference between threats that we can see in the future, uh, like perhaps the Iranian uh, nuclear threat, and uh, the, the baggage that we carry with us from the past. And those are the collective traumas that groups uh, carry. 
in the case of uh, Israel, it's very clear. It's the uh, Holocaust. And much of my research looks at how the Holocaust continues to affect political perceptions, uh, not just in Israel, in Israel and in Europe. Um, and, uh, and, and we're finding some very interesting uh, things about that. And what have you found in terms of this collective baggage, you know, this trauma, this victimization? You know, some people might think of it as a maladaptive response, but how do you see it? Okay, so here's where the evolutionary part uh, comes in. And uh, what I am suggesting is that uh, there's something actually very adaptive about, this sounds uh, uh, weird, but there's something adaptive about a post-traumatic response, even at the individual level. So, of course, PTSD is not something that anybody wants, but the reason that people develop post-traumatic reactions is because the body, the mind, are trying to protect themselves from the, the same kind of threat. So a group at the group level, a group that has gone through a collective trauma, uh, is, is, uh, is, is perhaps doing the right thing when it tries to uh, think about how to prevent such, a, uh, such an event from uh, reoccurring. If we look at the uh, Jewish experience in Europe, one thing that is always striking to me is that uh, uh, Jews in Europe were completely defenseless and never really try to do much about that. So when, when we look at groups and we think about group protective mechanisms, then many groups have ways of protecting themselves. Uh, Jews in Europe never thought of, you know, maybe we should have like a, uh, uh, you know, a group of people to protect us. Maybe we should have guards, uh, maybe a watchtower or something uh, in every shtetl. No, no, nobody uh, thought of that. Uh, maybe hide some uh, axes and uh, <laughs> uh, machetes or something. Uh, no, none of that. It was all about the, the Jewish defense mechanism was prayer. Okay, prayer was supposed to be the way to uh, defend against threat. And uh, Zionism, to a large extent, is a, uh, uh, a revolt against that mindset. It's basically saying we can't uh, count on uh, the man in the sky anymore. We have, to, uh, we have to do something ourselves. We have to take our own uh, security in our own hands. And, and in that sense, Zionism was uh, very much uh, anti-religious at first. Uh, today, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's gone in, in another direction, but the beginning was a rebellion against uh, religion. And uh, so, so when it comes to the uh, lessons that groups learn from such a trauma like uh, the Holocaust, then being very suspicious of others, being hypervigilant, uh, arming yourself to the teeth, of course, there are many maladaptive aspects to it. But at the basic level, there's something adaptive about a group uh, that uh, was completely defenseless and uh, learned a lesson and uh, started to defend itself. So maybe the pendulum has completely shifted from one side to the other, and maybe now it's at the other extreme. Right. There's a point at which the the response becomes maladaptive, even though its um, primary function was adaptive. Right. Uh, and and uh, it's very hard to, you know, to, to draw a clear line and say from this point it's maladaptive. But clearly, uh, you know, one thing that uh, many people say about Israel is that it— uh, uh, swats uh, flies with uh, sledgehammers, uh, and and there's something maladaptive about that. Of course, that is it, that post-traumatic response, right? And that's a post-traumatic response. Yes, definitely. it's uh, it's the overreaction to any little threat, and also reading small threats as much bigger threats. 
Right. And, and of course, when you react very harshly to every threat, you are also creating new threats. You're not just addressing the threats. So, uh, so, so, of course, it's very hard to say <clears throat> where to draw the line and exactly where is it, uh, you know, where, where does it stop uh, being adaptive and, and it becomes maladaptive. But uh, at the basic level, uh, it is an adaptive response. Okay. And now I want to get into a little bit of this idea of conflict resolution mm -hmm. and how, you know, we, we think that if only we can kind of work out our differences and get along, then really what everyone wants is peace right. at the end of the day. And you've shown that that's not necessarily the case. Right. Uh, I think there's something, um, you know, even even silly, uh, sorry about this uh, mindset of we all have to be friends. Mm -hmm. um, and it's just not realistic, and it's not the way the world works, and it's not the way the world has ever worked. Uh, and I'm not against peace at all. On the contrary, I, I think that it's important to make peace, but we need to be realistic about, first of all, what exactly conflict resolution is and when we should and should not expect it. And uh, my basic uh, argument is that conflict resolution is not an end in and of itself. It is a means towards an end. Mm -hmm. And the end is group survival. What groups are interested in is surviving, is surviving and thriving. So conflict resolution that may advance that goal is going to be attractive. But conflict resolution that is either unrelated to that goal or may even compromise that goal is not going to be uh, attractive at all. It's not going to be uh, sought after. So uh, if we, we can look at different conflicts around the world and try to predict how they're going to uh, end. Um, let's take, for example, the Chinese occupation of Tibet. Okay, that's been going on since the uh, 1950s. And uh, I don't see any reason why China would ever give up on occupying Tibet. Why would it ever stop doing that? Tibet does not pose a threat to China. It doesn't even, it's, it's not even a mosquito bite to China. You know, it's, first of all, of course, the, the resistance there is nonviolent. And um, even if it was violent, there, there would be no real threat to China. So there's absolutely no interest in that conflict for uh, conflict resolution. The, the, the dominant side, China, has no reason to uh, compromise or try to change the situation. Uh, if you look at uh, Russia and uh, Crimea or Russia and Chechenia, again, you don't see much of a uh, Russian interest or motivation in ending those conflicts, even though from time to time they get violent and there are casualties, etc., it's still a very, very minor cost for uh, Russia. Right. The trade-off for a s small amount of conflict for Russia is going to be, you know, it's going to be much more beneficial to keep that conflict than to if we, if we look at Crimea, that's one of Russia's only outlets into the sea, into the ocean. Mm -hmm. And so strategically, it's extremely important. So what if, you know, if it's going to cost them a few Russian soldiers uh, here and there? I'm sorry for, uh, you know, for, for being uh, so... Uh, it's uh, realistic, though. Yeah, but that's how it is. You know, the Russia, big Russia with uh, hundreds of uh, millions of people or 100 million people, they're not going to uh, care that much about losing a few soldiers for a strategic um, asset like uh, Crimea. Um, I, I think... And I think, we can go on and on. There are many, right. many conflicts like that in the world. But if we focus on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, I think one of the problems in this conflict is that most Israelis don't understand why we do need to end the conflict. 
Most Israelis focusing on the physical threat that we talked about before, the, th- the, the threat that the Palestinians uh, pose either to individual Israeli lives or to the existence of the country, that physical threat is extremely minor. Uh, the Palestinians cannot uh, destroy Israel. Okay, there's absolutely no way that's going to uh, happen. And even if we look at the number of casualties of terrorism over the years, that number has dropped very dramatically. It was never very high to begin with, and it's uh, it, it, it has dropped. I think uh, uh, you know it was maybe uh, five or six casualties uh, last last year. Um, of course, each casualty is uh, very important, and and I'm not uh, trying to minimize the uh, grief and loss uh, of the families, but. Uh, when we look at uh, you know at it from the perspective of a country of a group, that's a very very small price to pay. So the, if it was just about the physical threat, there would be no is no reason for Israel to compromise with the Palestinians and try to reach a an agreement. Right and but, here enters the more symbolic threat. Right, but if we look at the symbolic threat, the symbolic threat is a very very significant threat, and this is really a threat that could. Uh, completely change Israel and could uh, uh, lead Israel to uh, become something else, to become a country that is no longer a Jewish state or a democracy or both. What is this threat? The threat is that uh, the the Jewish population of Israel is about 6.5 million. There are about uh, two more million uh, Israeli Arabs. There are about two million more uh, Palestinians in the Gaza Strip and about 2.6 million in the West Bank. The number of Jews and the number of Palestinians west of the Jordan River in areas that are either directly or indirectly under Israeli control, uh, the number of Palestinians is is almost equal to the number of Jews. That means something uh, very simple. Over time, either this entire unit of land will be one and uh, it will no longer be a Jewish state. Maybe it will be a democratic state. Uh, I, I highly doubt that. Or it will be a Jewish state, but without a Jewish majority, which means that it will be some form of an apartheid state, which is also a huge transformation in what from what the country is uh, today. And uh, and again, if we're just if we're being realistic and not just uh, talking about this from a moral perspective, uh, I don't see any way that such an apartheid state. Uh, would be able to last over time. We we saw uh, you know the, the how that works uh, in South Africa, and I don't think we want to go in that uh, direction. It doesn't work. Yeah. It doesn't work. Even even if we put morality aside, if we just look at it practically, does it work? No, it doesn't work. And of course, it's also highly immoral. That's another uh, uh, aspect uh, of it. So what this means is that conflict resolution is necessary for Israel because if it doesn't get out of the West Bank and uh, doesn't also uh, relinquish its control from the Gaza Strip, uh, which it has for, to some extent. And, and the disengagement from Gaza definitely uh, did contribute to reducing the symbolic threat. But we still control Gaza uh, uh, to a large extent. But if we manage to relinquish our control from those two uh, areas, then maybe it will come at the cost of an increased physical threat to, to individuals, not to the country uh, at all. And uh, but that will ensure Israel's existence as a Jewish and democratic state, because Israel can continue to function as such with a eighty uh, percent Jewish majority, which is uh, seventy-five to eighty percent Jewish majority. And here comes into play the 
the different priorities that the left and the right have, right? The right are a lot more perceptive of the physical threats and the left is a lot more um, to the symbolic. And how, how do you see that conversation playing out? Well, first of all, I would say that most Israelis do not see the symbolic threat. Even the left that wants to get out of the territories, the, the motivation is, is different. It very often comes from uh, more universalistic uh, values, moral. Uh, human rights, yeah. from a moral perspective. And uh, only few really understand the symbolic uh, threat. On the right, there's massive denial of the symbolic threat uh, and, uh, or there are unrealistic uh, solutions uh, to it. Um, so, so the symbolic threat is really a big issue uh, that, uh, that, that some leftists uh, see and uh, almost none of the people on the right uh, perceive or take uh, seriously. The physical threat is something that, that is very clear and very easy to explain. When there is a uh, rocket attack on Israeli towns, when a bus explodes uh, in an Israeli city, uh, that's very, very uh, tangible. It's very physical. It's something that everybody can see and understand. Uh, there's also a difference in the likelihood that the threat will materialize. If uh, we had to guess, you know, guesstimate at this point, what are the chances of there being another rocket attack on an Israeli town, let's say, in the next year? I think we, we would probably say 100% or close to 100%, right? Because that's how it's been in the past uh, few years. So we know that the physical threat is going to materialize in some way or another. What are the chances that the symbolic threat will, will materialize? Very hard to estimate. Nobody knows exactly how that's going to go. Uh, there are all kinds of uh, factors that it's can influence. It's a gradual shift as well. It's very, very gradual. And, and this is another big difference between the left and the right that we see not just in Israel, we see around the world. Uh, I recently completed a a large-scale study with a postdoc of mine, uh, Dennis uh, Khan, a former postdoc, and uh, Dr. Dennis Khan. And uh, what we did is we ran research uh, mostly in the UK and the uh, US, but also in 22 countries around uh, the world on large-scale samples, looking at the difference between leftist and rightist in threat perception. And what you see is a very clear pattern. You see that rightists around the world, rightist conservatives around the world, they are very attuned to physical threats. They, whether it's crime, whether it's terrorism, uh, anything uh, physical, they see it, they perceive it, they're very alert to it, and they respond to it. But they're when very it comes, aware of the boundaries as well. They're the the physical territorial boundaries. Right, you're right, and also they uh, perceive threats that are local and not global. Okay, so they're very much focused on their group, on their local community. When we look at leftists around the world, at uh, liberals, they are much more attuned to threats that are global, first of all, and uh, threats that we call threats of omission. Threats of omission are threats that uh, there's no clear perpetrator. There's no one who's trying, who's necessarily trying to harm us, but something happens. And that something has a uh, certain nature of how it progresses. It, it usually starts off very small and then uh, progresses at an exponential uh, rate Can until you give it becomes us an example? a example. Well, we're living through one of these examples. And, uh, you know, COVID-19 is a great example of how that works. And uh, our model uh, works perfectly with uh, COVID-19 because around the world we're seeing that uh, the right 
has uh, overall uh, denied the threat. And even when uh, COVID uh, was at the doorsteps of, uh, you know, uh, European and, and, uh, uh, and the United States, European countries in the United States, uh, we saw that mostly conservative leaders were the ones who denied the magnitude of the threat or how it's going to uh, develop. And the left or leftists were much more likely to say, uh, hey, this is something that should really concern off. Uh, and they were ridiculed uh, at first. And of course, we're seeing today uh, where that uh, led. And there's even a difference in uh, casualties in uh, you know in, in the uh, rate of uh, spread of the disease between uh, liberal and conservative uh, communities. Even in the U.S., you can see it. You can see that uh, uh, the first wave of uh, COVID hit uh, primarily, predominantly uh, liberal places because liberals live in big cities. Okay. So New York City was hit very hard. But then over time, what happened is that uh, in the more liberal places, uh, there was a decline in the uh, rate of in, in the spread of the disease. And in more conservative areas, you saw a peak in uh, infections. Uh, and that is because there was much more of a denial of, a, of the threat. Uh, to this day, we see uh, even in, in surveys and uh, uh, opinion polls, we see that uh, conservatives are much more likely to deny the threat um, ignore it, uh, you know, have all kinds of conspiratorial ideas about it. Yeah, even though it's a physical disease, it's still not something that you can physically see. It's not only that, it's, you can't physically see it, and it's also a, uh, a threat of omission in the sense that unless you believe in uh, conspiracy theories, it's something that happened. Nobody tried to infect uh, the world with it. It's something that just uh, took place. Um, I always say that uh, uh, if there's a lesson to be learned uh, from COVID-19 is that it should be a wake-up call to another threat of omission that is right at our doorstep right now, and that is uh, uh, the environmental threat, uh, global warming, and all of that. That's another f- kind of threat that, you know, you look outside uh, your window and everything seems fine. It's a sunny day and, uh, you know, the grass is green, the trees are uh, blooming. You see no reason to uh, to feel threatened. But uh, the, the nature of this threat, again, is that when it appears, and, and uh, it does, it also uh, grows at an exponential rate, when it appears it will be too late to respond to it. So when there's one uh, sick person uh, with uh, COVID in a country, then you can uh, you can deal with it. You can you can do something, but when it's spread throughout the entire country, it becomes much more difficult to uh, tackle. I think that this this view that explains the the differences in you know what we're afraid of, and it shows that it can help us understand that the other side um, it's. It's just different values, right? It's different priorities. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times the conversation derails into, um, um, you know, they don't understand anything or right. they, they, they're they just maybe immoral, uh, right? Each side has their own, right. uh, Absolutely. own dialogue. They're either idiots or they're immoral. Exactly. Right? Yeah. And uh, that's a very good point because I think that if we recognize the fact that uh, because of our political ideology, because of our political values, we're going to be much more attuned to a certain part of reality. Right now we're talking about threats, but it's true for other things as well. Uh, and, uh, And that maybe other people are seeing an aspect of reality that we're not seeing. That could uh, uh, contribute to another problem that we're seeing today around the world, which is political polarization, 
We're right. seeing how, you know, we're seeing this here in Israel. In the United States, it is, you know, maybe the, the most extreme example of uh, how that's going. Full-blown. Full-blown, and uh, we see that in Europe as well. But if people come to understand that the other side aren't just a bunch of uh, evil idiots, uh, but they're actually seeing something that maybe we're not seeing, uh, there, there's something, uh, you know, there, there's something... Uh, it requires a certain degree of modesty to realize or recognize that uh, we are not seeing everything and that we don't have the full picture of reality. If we understand that, at least it could make us interested in engaging with the other side and trying to understand what they're about. Um, I think in the case of the United States, it's it's very interesting because what we're seeing right now is, uh, and, and I'm hearing this a lot from my uh, liberal friends in uh, academia, is uh, they really, you know, the way they talk about uh, conservatives and, and Trump supporters is, as we said before, is a bunch of uh, ignorant, uh, racist, uh, you know, uh, fools. Uh, dehumanizing. They, they dehumanize them. Now, I'm not saying that uh, there aren't Trump supporters or conservatives who are like that. But 70 million people voted for Trump. It's hard to believe that 70 million people, um, uh, you know, fall uh, under that uh, definition of, of being a bunch of uh, idiots and fools and racists, uh, etc. Many of them are simply seeing something or are concerned about something that liberals aren't seeing and, and, uh, or don't understand the magnitude of the problem that conservatives are seeing. And uh, if, if we had to put our finger on that problem, then again, it's a symbolic threat. It's the shift, the demographic shift that has taken place in the United States over time. Uh, I think it was, uh, you know, in the early uh, 1900s, um, about 85 or 90 percent of uh, U.S. citizens were white. Today, it's below 70 uh, percent. It's like uh, maybe 65 percent or so. That's a change. It doesn't mean that that change is bad or good, or but it's a change. And we know that change is threatening, and it's especially threatening to people who are resistant to change. And we know that conservatives are much more resistant to change. The, the whole idea of conservatism is to conserve, is to conserve right? Exactly. It's, it's to, so, so it's very, you know, it makes, it makes sense that they would react uh, to such a change. Uh, the problem, perhaps, is that they are imagining something that is... Uh, fantastical and that is not likely to happen and they're imagining that this is going to be much more worse for their group than, um, than, than what we see in reality. So the way to address their threat isn't to dismiss it and ignore it, but to try to engage with it and try to show them that, yes, there is a change. And, and you're right, change is scary. Any change is scary. But let's see what we can do to maybe protect your interests in, in, this, uh, in this change. And I think that that kind of a dialogue could really reduce political polarization. Absolutely. I mean, if you, if you look at it that way, the whole make America great again was kind of a way to preserve the American identity. Exactly. Exactly. It, it was even more than that. It, it definitely, um, you know, make America great again uh, was a slogan that spoke to many uh, white people because they feel threatened. And they m making America great again is a way of saying uh, making America 
you know, white like it was in the 1950s and uh, not as diverse as, as it is today. And, and you know, even, even though there is something racist about that uh, mindset, I think it's important to understand uh, that people who react to this are not necessarily racist as much as they're afraid for themselves, their culture, their community. And uh, there are ways to address that without, of course, uh, reversing a change that's very natural. Right. Being aggressive towards them isn't going to make them any less afraid. It's going to make them more defensive. And Right. You know, I always say that we need to, as psychologists, we need to treat uh, social problems like that the same way that we treat uh, social problems at the individual level. So if, we, if a, if a uh, clinical psychologist is treating, let's say, someone who is uh, abusive towards their family, if we just point a finger at them and tell them how bad and evil they are, that's not going to change their behavior. That's not going to help them. The only way to help people like that is to try to understand them and try to show them a different way and to try to uh, show them a more adaptive way of expressing their concerns. You know, sometimes sometimes these people do have concerns that are legitimate, but they're just expressing them in, in a very bad way. So if you teach them how to change their behavior and change the way they think, then uh, you'll be doing much uh, more good than if you just point a finger at them and say you're an evil idiot. Absolutely. And I think, um, you know, we, we view racism today as this completely immoral thing. And of course, you know, in our in our day and age, it is. But understanding the evolutionary mechanisms that are at play are really important. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, you know, we we are living through uh, a very interesting experiment, which is which is quite successful overall. And that's multiculturalism. You know, multiculturalism has really only existed uh, from since the uh, second half of the 20th century. Up until then, most groups were relatively isolated. Most groups in the world today still are relatively isolated. If you go to the you know large population centers in the world, if you go to China, you know, go anywhere in uh, rural China, you're not going to see much diversity. If you go to India, you're not going to see much diversity. Or, or what is considered diversity in these communities is not the same kind of diversity that we're speaking uh, about. Um, in, in Europe and, the, and in the United States in the uh, post-war uh, era, uh, we're seeing much, much more diversity, which means people from all corners of the uh, planet living together. And overall, it works. It's an experiment that has, uh, uh, that has worked quite well. But it is a challenge. We need a new playbook for it, so to speak. We need a new playbook for it. And and we need to also recognize that people are still going to have a a certain reaction to others who are different from them. Uh, They're going to be uh, maybe more fearful and maybe more suspicious. Uh, That We know that that's getting better over time, but it's still there. It's still there, and uh, it's not something that there's no magic that can make it go away. Yeah, I think just understanding that there is a gap to be bridged and that someone who is um, having a harder time bridging that gap for themselves, they're not evil, but there is a way to to help these mechanisms along, right? Yeah, I mean, if we look uh, here in Israel, we're living in a very diverse uh, society, uh, even though it's predominantly Jewish. But uh, uh, there are Jews here from, again, all corners of the, uh, of the earth. And uh, sometimes not everybody here gets along because of cultural differences. 
uh, because uh, of, of different ways of thinking and, and different customs and uh, different tastes in music and food and, and whatnot. Uh, so it is a challenge. Um, I think that here it's working a little bit better than in other places because there is that unifying umbrella construct of uh, being Jewish, but, uh, but it's still difficult, of course. Right. And in terms of America, there is this idea of the American dream, right? That today is, um, first of all, some people feel that it's under attack, but really has, it has been the mechanism that helped this melting pot. Right. right. And yeah, you're absolutely right about that. That's something that has changed very dramatically. So up until, uh, you know, this, this era, pretty much, uh, every generation of Americans knew that uh, they're do- they are uh, better off than their parents and their children will be better off than them. So there was this sense of uh, progression. Um, I had some relatives in San Francisco who were born in the uh, 1910s, uh, lived through the uh, Great Depression didn't have a penny uh, to their name, but made it. You know, they uh, they really did well for themselves, and they lived in San Francisco and, and uh, had a, a great life until the age of 96. They both uh, died at that age. Um, and, and they're really uh, kind of an example of that great generation that uh, was able to build themselves from scratch and make a life for themselves and for their uh, children. Up by their bootstraps. But, and... Right, exactly. But today, uh, you know, when, when American parents are thinking about their children, they don't see that anymore. They don't see exactly how their children are going to uh, thrive in, in uh, that society. Uh, and that creates a crisis. And, um, you know, much of the American middle class, the white middle class that thought it was uh, going to do better and better, uh, feels that it's... Uh, 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 that it's not doing so well. And after 2001, after two economic uh, blows, 2001, 2008, and now with uh, COVID-19, they're feeling that maybe they're even worse off and that uh, you know many of them uh, are experiencing uh, an economic and social uh, crisis. That leads them to more extreme ideas because they have to. They have to uh, explain to themselves why is this. Why is this happening? And grasping for solutions. And grasping for solutions. And then you know, immigration is always a good answer, even though uh, realistically, or if you if you look at the uh, data, uh, the problem isn't immigration. That's not the problem. There's something much deeper in American society that's taking place, and and in the world economy. Right, and I think Trump really spoke to these fears, and that that is what made him so popular. Right, exactly. Uh, and so so we saw in 2016, when nobody thought that he would be elected, we saw all of a sudden that uh, white middle-class America uh, rallied uh, behind him. And even now, even though he lost, uh, more Americans voted for him than ever before. And, and I think that one of the interesting things to uh, look at are, uh, is uh, who are the people who voted for Trump this time? in uh, 2020. So we see, first of all, you know, if you take a map of the United States and you look only at uh, uh, white men, mm-hmm. what you'll see is that nearly all 50 states are, pa- are painted red. So white men voted for Trump. It's, it's very clear. Uh, and if you take only men, whether white or not, you also see that men as a whole voted for Trump. And how uh, do you explain that? What's very interesting about this is that Trump was very popular among uh, minority men as well, African-American men and uh, uh, and Hispanic men. 
because there's something about Trump that is extremely politically incorrect when it comes to uh, gender relations. And I think that for some men, that's appealing. You know, this macho guy who doesn't care about anything and can, you know, he can say what he wants and do what he wants. Uh, that, uh, you know, it's, it, it might be scary, but uh, uh, it is uh, appealing to uh, many, many men. And I think also going back to what we said before, where, you know, if the left attacks people who are uh, really acting out of fear, right? These, um, you know, the people who voted for Trump, they're afraid for their own jobs, for their families' futures, um, and for the loss of national identity. So they're in a state of fear. And being attacked by the left only made Trump more appealing. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, I think one of the problems of the American left is that, on the one hand, they're absolutely right that something has to change when it comes to uh, race relations in the United States. Um, you know, the, the violence against uh, black men in particular is something that's uh, unacceptable, and, and uh, American liberals uh, are very uh, sensitive towards that. Um, this whole campaign <clears throat> of knocking down statues and uh, monuments and changing names of uh, places, there, there's something on the one hand that, um, you know, I, I can definitely understand about that, and I think that's positive, but it can go to the extreme. And the extreme is trying to wipe out uh, any positive aspect of white American culture. And, and I think that many white Americans who are not racist, who are not against uh, trying to make uh, their society uh, more uh, egalitarian, but they are against uh, erasing the contribution of European Americans to what the United States is today, uh, I, I think that uh, that's something that needs to be taken into account. It's not enough to just knock down statues. There are also things that need to be uh, celebrated. And, and sometimes this attempt to uh, you know, erase history uh, goes to the extreme. And I'll just give you one example. The uh, San Francisco School Board uh, has started this campaign of, of renaming everything. They, you know, almost indiscriminately, they want to rename the names of every school, every street, every whatever. Uh, and uh, so I, I started looking at some of the things that they're renaming. So, you know, among others, uh, Lincoln uh, High School, uh, uh, Abraham Lincoln. That's not not good enough for them. He was wow. a white guy, uh, etc. Um, Abolished slavery, but it's not that's not, not enough. good enough. That's not enough, right? And uh, my relatives that I talked about uh, earlier, they uh, graduated. They both graduated from uh, Lowell uh, High School. Uh, so I, 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 you know, and and they're tr they want to change the name of that high school as well. This is this is one of the oldest high schools in San Francisco. So I, I decided to see who exactly was this uh, Lowell guy and why was he so evil. Turns out he was a poet, and that all of his of his poetry was about abolishing slavery. Okay, that's that's what it was about. But again, he was you know this white dude. So and you want to uh, name schools after uh, you know more a more diverse representation of uh, people. So I can I can understand that sentiment. But but when you start attacking people like uh, Lincoln and and Lowell, uh, you're going to get a backlash. You're going to get a reaction to that. It's a very extreme response, and yeah. also I think that. You know, looking back at history, there's always lessons to be learned. There were good things and there were bad things. And we're constantly evolving, not only, you know, technological innovations and progressing in that direction, but we're constantly updating and evolving our ethics right. and our morality. And 
sometimes it takes a few generations to learn the tough lessons. And I think erasing that is, you know, Abraham Lincoln, not perfect, but still did, did his part to to advance this um, this new morality, right? This new moral world that we'd like to live in. Right. Um, you know, another example of that, uh, striving for perfection. You know, uh, Lincoln is not perfect enough. Um, uh, Congresswoman uh, Cortez, AOC. Yes. Uh, she uh, refused to participate in a memorial for uh, Prime Minister Rabin because of his uh, history, you know, his, his history of uh, uh, dealing with the uh, first uh, intifada. So, you know, th- this to me was uh, really a sign of how wrong uh, things are going because, of course, Rabin wasn't perfect. He was very far from perfect. But he made a very important first step. He made a very bold uh, move. And, and the fact that an Israeli general, a former general, was able to do that is, uh, you know, is, is something that needs to be celebrated and not, uh, uh, and, and not dismissed like that. Uh, and and AOC's uh, response was really showed this uh, you know this uh, Puritan aspect of some of the uh, more extreme left. Very that, intolerant. That's you know. very intolerant, right? Instead of supporting the Israeli peace camp, she did the opposite. She said, "Rabin isn't good enough. I'm not going to participate in his memorial." You know, even on the individual personal level, um, I would hope that people aren't so um, you know puritanical and. That one mistake doesn't, um, you know, completely denigrate somebody's character. You know, people do make mistakes and we do evolve and uh, we can learn from our individual lessons and our collective lessons. I think these extreme responses on the left, they necessitate an extreme response on the right. Right. And, you know, the the first person to uh, speak up about that was uh, former President Obama, who, uh, uh, who who talked about uh, call-out culture. He said that has to stop. You know, we have to look at people's intentions. Cancel and not just culture even more cancel so, culture, yeah. Not just about the specific words they use. Sometimes people are going to make mistakes. Sometimes they're going to use the wrong term or the wrong words or maybe uh, uh, display some kind of insensitivity that's not intentional. And uh, and, and we, we need to be a little bit more forgiving of that, because if we keep pointing out people and uh, destroying people's reputation because of a small uh, mistake or error that they made, then of course there's going no to be no one's backlash. going to be left. Also, <laughs> and, and there's going to be that is what promotes Trumpism. At the end of the day, at the end of the day, when people see that, many of them uh, are not going to go outside and say anything about it. But when election day comes. They will cast uh, a ballot uh, in, 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 that, that is in response to that. Absolutely. Okay, so with everything that we've discussed today, how do you see your multidimensional model? How would you like to see it being applied today? And how do you think it can benefit us and bring about a more peaceful society? Okay, I'll try to put everything in a, in a nutshell. Um, you know, the first point is that threat is a uh, multifaceted phenomena and that it's not a unitary phenomena. And we need to recognize the fact, first of all, there are many, many different types of threats and also understand that we don't see all of them. Okay. And no matter who we are, some of us see certain threats, some of us see other threats. No one uh, sees all threats 
or, or sees all threats accurately. That's, uh, you know, there's always a bias in threat perception uh, as well that we need to uh, consider. The second point is that these differences uh, usually, uh, they're usually on a uh, political continuum from the left to the right. So there's certain threats that rightists are more likely to see and other threats that leftists are more likely to see. And if we believe that it's important to uh, protect our group and protect the world that we live in and protect uh, you know, both the uh, local and uh, the global, then we need to recognize that we probably need those other people that see the world differently than uh, we do, because they are, you know, if we're if we are on guard for certain types of threats, they're on guard for other types of threats that are also important to us. So if we're uh, leftists and we're concerned about uh, global warming and the environment and not so concerned about terrorism, it's probably good that somebody is concerned about terrorism because terrorism is also our problem as well, and vice versa, of course. So maybe the rightists who don't care about global warming, uh, they should. Uh, you know, they should be grateful that somebody is uh, worried about that and taking care of that because that is something that uh, should concern them at the end of the, uh, of the day as well. And what this comes down to is that really uh, this uh, model of threat can serve as a bridge for uh, uh, resolving the problem of political polarization. I'm not at all against the the fact that people have different political opinions. I think that's good. I think it's very healthy for a society to have a uh, to be diverse in terms of political uh, opinion. But I think it's uh, it's very harmful when each side sees the other side as uh, you know the ultimate enemy and has absolutely no sympathy for the other side. Because we really need each other at the end. We of the need day. each other, and uh, you know, in, in uh, another series of studies that I ran with another postdoc of mine, with uh, Dr. Uri Lifshin, uh, what we're finding is that people on the right and on the left recognize the positive qualities of people on the other side. So rightists understand what leftists are good at. Leftists understand what rightists are good at. And not only that, they want to strategically use the other side in order to advance group goals. Um, An example uh, of that is that uh, uh, when you ask people uh, you know, if, let's say that we need to create a committee to deal with the problem of uh, terrorism or crime or something like that. You'll see that people want more rightists in that committee. Even leftists want more rightists. Hmm. But when it comes to things like uh, the environment or improving relations with other groups, etc., what we see or science, what we see is that people want a, a higher proportion of leftists in that group. So, so people understand that and they use that uh, strategically. And uh, that uh, led me to think about, um, um, you know, a a model of uh, uh, human uh, social groups that that, that I learned about when I was an undergrad at uh, Berkeley. Uh, This is uh, Emil uh, Durkheim's uh, model. He's one of the fathers of modern uh, sociology. And he talked about groups as a superorganism. And what he said is that uh, a superorganism is like an organism, it has the same uh, uh, goals which are survival and uh, self-protection. And each individual in a group is like a cell in the body of the superorganism. And what that means is that each cell isn't necessarily aware of the existence of the other cells and doesn't understand what the other cells are supposed to do. So, you know, maybe the cells in the heart don't understand or don't care about the kidney or don't and don't know that it it exists even, but uh, they need the kidney in order to uh, survive. 
in the same way, in human societies, we need that diversity in order to survive. The superorganism needs rightists and it needs leftists and it needs the different segments that exist uh, in society. And, and the, the disagreement should be more about the balance between right and left and not so much about who is right. Uh, there's no one right side. It's, it's all about the correct balance in a specific situation. Right. Uh, in some situations, you want there to be more rightist, and in other situations, you want there to be more uh, leftist. Uh, to, to bring a historical example, uh, Winston Churchill led uh, Britain to victory in World War II and immediately afterwards lost the elections uh, uh, to Attlee, uh, a socialist, who created the, uh, the infrastructure uh, of uh, health services, of uh, social welfare in the uh, UK. So during the war, they needed somebody like Churchill, but Churchill was not the right prime minister in the uh, post-war period. Post-war period. In the post-war period, what they needed is someone who would build the infrastructure that would allow British society to uh, uh, to continue and thrive. Wonderful. I really think that viewing the current political scene through this lens is a lot more sane and can really bring the kind of changes that we want to see in the world. So I think you really, really hit the nail on the head with what's missing. And I think adopting this kind of view has a lot of promise. Yes. And, and again, I don't think that we need to, um, to, to create a complete harmony without any, uh, without any arguments and without the, the tensions that exist. But it needs to be a healthy tension. Right. It's okay to disagree. Just like it's okay in any kind of relationship to disagree and have uh, arguments, as long as it's adaptive, as long as it serves the goal of preserving the group or the unit or whatever it is. And I think those conflicts, you know, um, within a society, those conversations, those arguments, that's that's necessary to, you know, arrive closer to the truth because nobody really has a full view of the Absolutely. truth. Absolutely. We're constantly trying to gauge it out through through these conversations. Right. Here in Israeli society, what uh, I would like to see is more of a conversation between the left and the right on the physical and symbolic threats because uh, there is a trade-off. And uh, if we address the physical threat, we might end up with a problem with the symbolic threat. If we address the symbolic threat, it might increase the physical threat. That discussion is necessary to find the correct balance in addressing both of these threats. Beautiful. I, I think that um, viewing uh, viewing the current political scene, the, pr the current political climate, you know, through this lens is a lot more sane um, and can really lead us to um, to making progress, the kind of progress that we want to see. Thank you. I hope so. <laughs> Thank you, Galad, for coming to speak with us. Thank you. My pleasure. For everyone out there listening... Thank you for tuning in to The Bigger Picture. I hope you found this conversation interesting. You can find us on all podcasting platforms, wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure to hit subscribe to stay up to date with the latest episodes. My name is Roni Firon. This is The Bigger Picture. And thank you for listening. Till next time.